No one would have believed that in the last years of the 19th century that this world was being watched keenly and closely by intelligences greater than man's and yet as mortal as his own. That as men busied themselves about their various concerns, they were scrutinised and studied, perhaps almost as narrowly as a man with a microscope might scrutinise the transient creatures that swarm and multiply in a drop of water. With infinite complacency, men went to and fro over this globe about their little affairs, serene in their assurance of their empire over matter. It is possible that the infusoria under the microscope do the same. No one gave a thought to the older worlds of space as sources of human danger, or thought of them only to dismiss the idea of life upon them as impossible or improbable. It is curious to recall some of the mental habits of those departed days. At most, terrestrial men fancied there might be men upon Mars, perhaps inferior to themselves and ready to welcome a missionary enterprise. Yet, across the gulf of space, minds that are to our minds as ours are to those of beasts of perish, intellects vast and cool and unsympathetic, regarded this earth with envious eyes, and slowly and surely they drew their plans against us. Let me take you back to my childhood. I was about 10, in the car with my dad, and he put on a cassette tape. I remember it because it was a white cassette in a double pack. On the front was a terrifying picture of this white and green spider-looking machine burning a ship with a ray gun. And then the music began. This overwhelming overture of evil, of terror. This was the eve of the war from Jeff Wayne's musical version of War of the Worlds. It scared the shit out of me. I cried and told Dad I didn't like it. And that was it. The tape was put back and laid dormant in his car for five more years, until I decided to give it another go, always peeking glance of it on car rides or when I cleaned the car. Upon my second listen, it ignited something inside, and since then I have become obsessed with the story of War of the Worlds. Jeff Wayne's musical version was amazing. It brought life to a terrifying tale of an alien invasion at the end of the 19th century. The music, the sound effects, the pure terror of the Martians and the fighting machines. But that was not enough to satisfy me. So I went and bought the book from a local bookstore. Tapes and books. Two things some of you won't understand. But this book, admittedly, other than World War Z, has been the only book I've read cover to cover multiple times. So throughout this episode, I'll be talking about the different ways War of the Worlds has been presented to us and the best interpretations. And I will finish with a new BBC miniseries and break down how I feel it was. I will leave a time code so anyone who does not want it to get spoiled can stop. I will additionally add a warning before I get into it. Let's start with the original book. War of the Worlds, written by H.G. Wells between the years of 1895 and 1897. It was first serialised in 1887 by Persons Magazine in the UK and Cosmopolitan in the US. A hardcover was released in 1889. It was one of the first stories to deal with the conflict between man and extraterrestrials. It's written in the first person, and it details the events experienced by an unnamed narrator in Surrey and his brother in London, who both detail what happened to them during the Great Martian Conflict. The book's divided into two parts, the coming of the Martians and the Earth under the Martians. After Ogilvy, the astronomer, sees massive explosions coming from Mars and flares with a green mist behind it making its way towards Earth, it creates a huge buzz in the science community. A few months later, the media lands on Horsell Common in Woking, the narrator's hometown. 
Along with him and others, they are the first to experience the monsters described as big, greyish, with oily brown skin, dark eyes, lipless V-shaped mouths surrounded by two tentacles, about the size of a bear. The narrator describes how the monsters appear to have trouble dealing with the gravity on Earth, which would be immense for them. This caused them to retreat into their craft and use the dreaded heat ray, which was described as a white flash of heat that instantly turned anyone it hit into fire. Everyone flees, and the Martians are left working and building their fighting machines. The narrator takes his wife to a nearby town to keep her safe. He borrowed a cart from the inn in Woking. As he returns to Woking to return the cart, a thunderstorm breaks out, giving me one of the most powerful scenes I've ever read, out of my two books, of course. As the fighting machines are exposed only in the split second between flashes of lightning and cutting off the narrator's way back to his wife. He also first encounters the artilleryman and the curate. From there we move to London to follow the narrator's younger brother, a medical student also unnamed. After the Great Panic, he experiences an exodus out of London with the millions of others who live there. He meets a couple of women along the way and make their way to the Essex coast in hope to flee England. As they manage to buy passage on a small paddle steamer, one of the many ships who are gathering to help evacuate refugees from England, the only thing standing between them and the ferocious tripods is the torpedo ram Thunderchild. And this is something I'm disappointed that's never been explored in any media other than Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds and also a super low budget film by Pendragon Films, as this would be such a powerful an expensive scene to make, but would make an epic episode in itself of a series. We could even have the characters of the ship being their own people before ultimately sacrificing themselves to let the refugees escape. But alas, the Thunderchild, after destroying two of the tripods, meets its ultimate fate, ending the last resistance England had to offer. The world had succumbed to the Martians. The second part returns us to the narrator and the curate. For those wondering, it's a priest of sorts. They are looking for food and going through houses. This is when they see a new form of machine, a giant metallic spider picking up people and throwing them to a large mesh box. One of the crafts lands on the house, the narrator and curator in, forcing them inside for two weeks. As the curate's mental health deteriorates, he is heard by an outside Martian and taken, all while the narrator could do nothing to prevent it. It's here we are led to believe that the Martians drain the blood of humans and inject it into themselves. After his time in captivity, the narrator emerges to find himself on an alien-like landscape surrounded by red vegetation as what you would see on Mars. He makes his way back to London, where he encounters the artilleryman again, who has gone slightly mad from his ordeal and plans to rebuild civilization underground. Upon seeing how his vision does not coincide with reality, the narrator leaves him to experience the loneliness, the nothingness. At this point, the narrator decides that he will give his life to the Martians. As he runs headlong into a motionless fighting machine, he is taken back to find out all the Martians have died, killed by the pathogens of Earth that we as humans over time have learned to live with or protect ourselves against. He is eventually able to return to his home and find his wife had survived, but there is always doubt they will one day return. Okay, so that was a really extremely rough outline of the general story. I recommend the book as it's an amazing read. Uh, the general themes of the book is a commentary on British, British colonialism. Uh, the general idea is said to have arisen because of a conversation Wells had with his brother asking what would happen if Martians did to Britain what Britain had done to the indigenous Tasmanians. 
Um, the book has also influenced thinkers and scientists, most, most notably Robert H. Goddard, who, inspired by the book, invented both the liquid-fueled rocket and the multi-stage rocket, which was eventually used for us to land on the moon for Apollo 11. That's pretty amazing. Due, due to the book being written before 1924, it is in public domain uh, in the United States, and being more than 70 years after Wells' death, it went into total public domain in 2016. There's been a multitude of adaptations and reimaginations of the book. Probably the most notable one is the 1938 radio drama by Orson Welles. A 60-minute radio play played on CBS as an episode of the Mercury Theatre on the air. Now I say most notable, not for the content, but mainly for the myth that it was the night that America panicked. It premiered on 8pm on Sunday, October 30th, which coincidentally was exactly 81 years ago to this day by no planning of mine, but I must push on. The content was produced in the style of radio programming, um, followed by musical interludes, followed by more reports of strange occurrences, and continued to follow the events from the book. The theory of the panic comes from many who may have turned to their radio during one of these musical interludes and then started hearing a news broadcast. In truth, there was no mass hysteria. Less than a third of the listeners even knew it was about Martians, and believed it was about a German invasion, as the world was in its final preparations for the grand stage of World War II. The only mass hysteria existed was in the media, which, as usual, sensationalised everything. Our very own newspaper, The Age, described the incident as mass hysteria, and stated that never in the history of the United States has such a wave of terror and panic swept the continent. Unnamed observers quoted by The Age commented, the Panic could have only happened in America. So this is a formal apology. Uh, the age is garbage. In film and television, the War of the Worlds is not without much representation. Each time the story is brought to life on screen, it's missing a little piece of it that makes it whole. The 1953 film with the same name by Paramount Pictures and produced by George Howe, starring Gene Berry and Anne Robinson. It's a loose, modern retelling of the original book, but it's switched from the setting of Victorian age England to a modern Californian. One of the fighting, uh, the fighting machines are traded for flying machines. In this adaptation, the Martians had force shields that made them that made them impervious even to nuclear weapons. At its core, it's a love story, much like the original book was classified, love in the time of invasion. It cost two million dollars to make and box office two million, so it broke even. So that's that's all right. I can deal with that. In 1983, there was a Polish film called The War of the Worlds, The Next Century. It was a propaganda film that was uh, banned in Poland because of its political tellings and whatever. It, I don't know. I haven't seen it. Um, I never knew it existed till I went down this rabbit hole. So, uh, 2005 was a big year for War of the Worlds. We had three movies. Uh, not many people would believe that. We actually had three War of the Worlds the same year Tom Cruise came out. We had War of the Worlds by Steven Spielberg, starring Tom Cruise. H.G. Wells' War of the War of the Worlds by Timothy Hines for Pendragon Pictures, and H. and H.G. War of the Worlds by The Asylum. We'll start with the Asylum film, as the title explains it. It's The Asylum, a company that thrives off making loose copies to back off AAA budget films. It's a modern retelling of the story with terrible CGI and bad acting. It was followed by a 2008 film, War of the Worlds, The Next Wave, which was equally disastrous. The Pendragon Pictures film is regarded by myself as being most faithful to the book. It was set in Victorian England in 1898. Its lead character was a journalist who experienced the terror. It had the scene with the cart. It has the brother escaping via steamship. 
Pendragon originally approached Paramount Pictures in the year 2000 to discuss the film, but nothing came of it. Timothy Hines was a man who loved the book and would have loved to make an amazing movie had Paramount gone with them. But instead, we were left with a movie with poor special effects to hold its storyline up. The film had no premiere or theatrical release due to exhibitors pulling out either from, from either bullying from Paramount Pictures or the fear of the studios punishing them. This was because, you guessed it, Paramount Pictures was responsible for that Steven Spielberg Tom Cruise movie. Okay. So, I'm going to kind of take this movie with a grain of salt, but let's discuss it anyway. Um, the War of the Worlds by Steven Spielberg had a budget of $132 million and a box office of $591 million. So, by no means was this a failure. The War of the Worlds community felt like this movie missed the point of the book and was a 118-minute close-up of Tom Cruise running. I can appreciate what this movie was trying to do with the modernized setting and the plotline of Ray trying to get his kids back to his wife. I can appreciate the scene on the ferry where the fighting machine knocks it over. I can appreciate the red weed and the Martians kidnapping people to take their blood. These things I can retrospectively look on and say, this is what we got. And in 2005, I was 17, and the movie really made me happy. The action, the drama, the war. But as I got older, I realised this movie was basically paramount, taking someone who had passion like Timothy Hines and replacing it with a, with a name, albeit a big name in Hollywood, and showing him up. I must protest, however. This movie was not made for fans of the book. This movie was made for everyone to enjoy. The biggest part of movie making is knowing your audience. And everyone is better than people who want a period piece about Martians. Oh, but don't you worry. 14 years later, and that will come. Which brings us to the musical version of War of the Worlds. A progressive rock opera using narration and singing. It has sold 15 million copies worldwide and being named the 32nd best-selling studio album of all times in the UK. It has spawned many different versions, three video games, live shows, and most recently an audio experience on Audible starring Michael Sheen, and also a 110-minute immersive experiences experience that encompasses live acting, VR experiences, and atmosphere. I must note here that this is run by a company in England, and I am formally asking for them to bring it here to Australia. It's one thing to hear War of the Worlds, it's another thing to live it. The musical version is divided into two parts. Just like the book, the narrator is voiced by Richard Burton. In the stage production, they even have a hologram mock-up of Richard Burton, like high up on the wall. It was really awesome. I got to go see it, and it was just, it was a lot of fun. They had a, like, full-size Martian fighting machine, so that was great, because it was, like, laser-gunning everyone. <laughs> okay, um, there's 13 tracks in the musical, The Eve of the War, Horsell Common and the Heat Ray, The Artilleryman and the Fighting Machine, Forever Autumn, Thunder Child, The Red Weed Part 1, The Spirit of the Man, The Spirit of Man, The Red Weed Part 2, The Artilleryman Returns, Brave New World, Dead London, and The Epilogues. Through the musical, you experience the first-person account of the journalist as he navigates this new world that the Martians are carving out for them. This is very hard for me to describe why I love it so much, but I feel as though everyone should listen. It is an experience and is the closest adaptation to the book we have to date. Some of the things are changed. The journalist is present at the time of the Thunderchild and not his brother. The curate's role is downplayed, but his song is amazing. The sounds of the Martians are chilling to the bone. The way the red weed is depicted through sound makes it feel like the crawling, growing, advancing of the weed itself. Okay, so just so everyone knows, uh, we are now about to 
talk about BBC's adaptation. So anyone who does not want to listen to um, me talk about the new British broadcasting company's HG War of the Worlds miniseries, please turn off now, and it's been really nice listening and talking to you. This brings us to BBC's adaptation of the book, which was recently released in certain countries that led to an obscure release schedule. Produced by the BBC and directed by Craig Viveros, who also directed the Agatha Agatha Christie three-part series and then there were none, which in itself was an amazing series. It had a powerful cast such as Eleanor Tomlinson from Poldark, Rafe Spell from Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, and Robert Carlyle from the Full Monty and Stargate Universe. Its international distributor is ITV Studio Global. The series starts in the classic way, which every interpretation begins with, the seminal lines from the book, also met with a reddish wasteland planet, after which we meet our protagonists, Amy and George, as they are meeting with Ogilvy, the astronomer. He's looking intently upon Mars and has seen some strange occurrences over the last few nights. After leaving, Amy and George ride home. George is a writer for the newspaper and Amy is Ogilvy's assistant. The next day, George goes to work in London, Um, as there has been breaking news of British trawlers sinking, possibly due to the Russians. He gets tasked to meet with the Minister of War. The Minister of War secretary is his brother, after all. After a brief meeting with his brother, we find out George is currently married and living in sin with Amy, something that is apparently looked down on in this society. Also, the newspapers refuse to acknowledge George's work for the very same reason. A depressed George and Amy go to bed that night, but before they do, something collides with the earth just outside of town in the commons in Horsell. We are now met with a scene of landscape that looks awfully like Mars, and two hooded figures walking through the dust storm. The next day, Ogilvy, Amy and George go to the side of the meteor to find it has not been buried very far, and is in fact a ball encased with rock, with faint sounds coming from within. Over the next few days, more people approach the common, including a head of science who is a lazy oaf. As they begin to unbury the device, it cracks open. George, Amy, and Ogilvy are all separate as this happens. As a few men approach the pit, it begins spinning and rising, firing a ray of heat as people are turning into fire around George and Amy. Ogilvy is nowhere to be seen. We return to the hooded figures walking along an alien landscape as the sun is setting. Red weed and shards cover the screen. George returns to the common where he meets the artilleryman, who says it's just a forest fire. While this is going on, Amy goes to find Ogilvy, but only to find no one home at the observatory. He has multiple pictures over eight days showing eight different crafts leaving Mars. George and Amy meet up at home when Woking is attacked. A building falls, crushing their maid. George secures himself a horse and begins to flee with Amy, only to realise their dog is left behind. As George goes to the dog, a church falls, separating the two. Amy has no choice but to ride as far as she can and George needs to hide. We first see a fighting machine here. It bellows out a massive howl, and it's animated amazingly. It's got these weird reverse knees, like like how birds walk. So yeah, much props to the uh, animation department here. We are once again on the desolate red planet, which is finally revealed to be Earth. Five years into the future, the Martians are gone, but Earth is wasteland. Amy makes it to London to find George's brother, who is convinced Amy left George, but when Amy reveals she was, she's pregnant, he decides to help her. The hooded figures are also revealed to be Amy and Amy's son, George Jr. 
we return to George a mess. He's covered in dirt and he's not feeling very good because of the attack on Woking. As he returns to his house, the artilleryman from before finds him and George asks if they can stick together. As they are walking through the ruins, George hears a baby's cry. He goes to help, but a fighting machine stops his efforts and with a flash of the heat ray, the baby's cries cease. BBC really uh, just doesn't give a fuck. They will do anything. I'm kind of much love for that reason. Um, I mean, I'm not saying I like I like the fact that they're killing babies. I'm just saying they're not holding back. Like, you know how like animals in movies are always like, hey, you guys get to live just because people get sad. Who cares? The Minister of War doesn't believe anything is wrong as Amy tries to convince him that more are coming. At this point, the army drafts George by force as they try to attack another machine in Byfleet. Their crude weapons manage to destroy one of the capsules, but as they go to find parts of it, a fighting machine attacks, killing all of them except George, who flees, even though some of them are begging for their lives, begging for George to, you know, get out of the water. But George just ditches him, because all he could think about was survival, and that's even what Amy said. Amy said, I want you to stop thinking about everyone else and start thinking about yourself. Good girl, Amy. The Minister of War is making a rousing speech and says nothing is wrong. There's nothing for us to be concerned about. And at that exact point, a fighting machine attacks London, letting off jets of black smoke that, when inhaled, caused death. Which is a nice little twist to it. <coughs> Amy, George's brother, and the Minister of War escape into a tunnel, but the smoke had already killed the poor minister. In the future, the parson tells Amy that a man from Woking is on the registry of the living and will be at the desolate town within a day. The parson also makes a point to say the only places the reds, the red weeds don't grow is the hallowed church ground. George is en route to London but sees a destruction going on there and convinced by an old lady, they head to the coast. They both drink from a communal trough of dark water. I gotta add here that water looked really disgusting so I don't know why George did that. Silly George. Uh, George's brother and Amy are making their way to the coast. Uh, here we are shown what looks like a reverse Dunkirk, as all of London is trying to escape in lifeboats to the bigger ships in the horizon to evacuate them to France. This is short-lived as the walkers approach. Sorry, the fighting machines approach. It's not the walking dead. George and Amy are finally reunited and the ships prove powerful against the fighting machines. George, his brother, Amy, the old woman, and a little girl wake, make it to a safe zone. Or a supposed safe zone. In the future, a man approaches, who is revealed to be Ogilvy, who survived because of his cowardice. He explains that even though the Martians have gone, they did, they succeeded in their task, and they may return. There is much debate of how the Martians died. George and the old woman begin to get sick due to the water they were drinking. A fighting machine crashed. A fighting machine crashes. A fighting machine crashes just next to the building, and this is the first time we see the Martian, a four-legged creature that has a retractable spike on the front, which they use to drain the blood of humans. Over the next few days, the two Martians appear to be weaker, and they formulate a plan to attack and escape. Unfortunately, a Martian was inside and kills the little girl. Yeah, again, BBC just doesn't give a fuck. It's like we gotta kill off this dead lady. Boom! Then George's brother and the old woman also get killed in this scene. George and Amy are trapped in what looks like a larder for days until, until George has had enough, and that, mixed with his mental breakdown, lead him to decide to try and reason with the Martians. 
Amy explains to Ogilvy that she escaped by George's final act of heroism or stupidity, and also that the Martians ate flesh. Um, I must add at this time as well, George is killed by the Martian, uh, giving Amy enough time to run away. Ogilvy and Amy decide to experiment by using sick George Jr.'s blood to see if the disease can kill off the red weed. It is successful, but to much hesitance from the community. Amy tells George Jr. about the world of before the Martians, and then she goes outside to see a single seed growing, a seed of green. So this was an amazing retelling of the story, and it was the closest big-budget series we have had. Due to the inconsistent release date and the way it was broadcast, caused some issues though. Officially, it's a three-part miniseries, but it was also released as a two-parter. So what I believe to be the end of part two is actually the ending altogether. The first half of the series was well-paced, and it was placing all the pieces together. The second, how the second half, however, felt a bit different, a bit slower, which is okay, but it ended with George's death, or did it? One of those moments that felt was too much. I don't know why George's death got to me so much. I think maybe it's because it's a big deviation from the book. From the start, George was set up to be the narrator, but it turned out that that was actually Amy who was taking that moniker which I had no issue with. I just wish George didn't have to die. Um, okay, so that's it. Um, happy Halloween, everyone. This was just a really fast bonus episode just to tell everyone about War of the Worlds and my love for it. So hopefully everyone enjoyed, and if you enjoyed this solo cast, I'm more than happy to do more. It took about three days of research, but I really enjoyed it, so you guys have a great night. I'm Nick from Dem Fancy Dinosaurs and Dem Fancy Movie Club coming at you right now. Boom!